Our scripture reading is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And our text is verse 11. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, too, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. If you don't normally have your Bible open before you, it's maybe a good idea to do that this morning or this evening. So I've decided to preach a sermon on just verse 11 of this passage because it's, it's part of a bigger theme It's part of the new humanity theme in Scripture, which is part of the new creation theme in Scripture, and it's just going to take a little bit of time to make that clear and to show you how that indeed comes out of this passage. The reason I feel that it's worthwhile to do this and to take the time for it is that one of the great encouragements for putting all the do's and the don'ts that that surround these verses, that are, are part of these verses, One of the great encouragements for putting them all into practice is the beautiful vision of what God God is working toward in our salvation. A great part of the motivation for Christian living is seeing the beauty of what God is accomplishing on the basis of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God's working towards a new creation. A new creation actually has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus. The new life that we have in Christ is eternal life, the life of the age to come, which has begun now already. Part of that new creation, so part of this whole picture is the new humanity that God has and is creating. And this passage that we're looking at this evening is at least describes something of what the new humanity is like. All the things that Paul tells us to put to death and all the things that he tells us to do instead, together they describe the kind of life that salvation enables the new humanity of the new creation to live. And a big part of learning to live that way is to be excited about being part of something that is so big and so wonderful and so attractive. 
what I want to do in this sermon is show you that the, this language of new humanity and new creation, that it comes from this passage. It's not obvious, but it's there, and I want to take the time to show you where it is. So verse 11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And an important question uh, as we approach this text is, why is that verse even there? Paul has been talking about putting sin to death. He's telling the Colossians to kill evil desires and idolatry and to put away anger and malice and malice and wrath. He's reminded them that when they turn to Jesus, they put off the old self and they put on the new self. He reminded them that the new self is being renewed in the image of God. And then all of a sudden he's talking about there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised and the rest there. And the question is, what does that have to do with what Paul has been talking about. And it's pondering that question that helps us to see the wonder and the beauty of what Paul is talking about here. Notice that Paul begins verse 11 with the word here. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. And the logical question to ask is, where is here? Where is there no Jew, Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised? And Paul is saying, right here, here, there is not Jew, a Greek or Jew and the rest. It's right here where the old self has been put off and where the new self has been put on. It's right here where the new self is being renewed in the image of God. This is where the distinction between Greeks and Jews and these other distinctions are somehow gone. We'll get to how they are gone later. The point to get now is that where the old self has been put off and where the new self has been put on and where the new self is being renewed in the image of God, there, there is not Greek Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. So that's where the here is. Get to the same place by substituting the word where for here. That's a legitimate move on the basis of the Greek. We can follow the flow of thought like this then, which comes to the same place. You have put off the old self. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of God. Where? There is not Greek and Jew. The place is that the place where these distinctions between people no longer exist, at least in some sense, is where the old self has been put off and the new self has been put on. I will spend a little time exploring the, this place where the old self has been put off and the new self put on. We looked at those terms last week. We're going to look at them again, but now in the light of verse 11. Last week when we looked at the terms old self and new self, I I just stuck with the ESV translation the way it is there because that was good enough for the point that I was drawing out on that in that sermon. But we're going to look at them again and and quibble with the translation because 
it's actually very important for verse 11, which is our focus now. The literal translation, old self, new self, is old man, new man. You'll see that if you, you can see that in the uh, footnotes of the ESV, which tend to be very helpful. I'm not sure why the translators use the word self instead of man. I'm sure they have their reasons, but using the word self instead of the word man hides something important. The term old man in Paul's writings refers to the whole human race in Adam. And the term new man in Paul's writings refers to the renewed human race, the new humanity in Christ. In biblical thought, corporate categories were very, very important. There's an interesting relationship between our individuality and our embeddedness in various groups. And both are clearly important, but the, the corporate aspect of life is more important in the Bible than it tends to be for us in our individualistic society. So when Paul here says that the Colossians had put off the old man, he's not just talking about them putting off their old individual selves, although that you don't exclude that, but that's not what he's saying. He's talking about a corporate category, the old man. It's a technical term which refers to the whole human race in Adam. The old man, the whole human race in its relationship to Adam, which is dead in sin. That has been put off. The term new man refers to the new humanity in its relationship to Christ, which is alive in Christ. And so while it's not wrong to interpret these terms in, in, in terms of these phrases, in terms of individual selves, it's not complete. It doesn't give the whole picture. What we turn away from in putting off the old man is the whole human race in its relationship to Adam. And what we put on when we put on the new man is the, whole, is the new humanity in Christ. Here's a couple of quotes from a scholar just to show that I'm not making this all up. Here... Thomas Schreiner's New Testament theology. Uh, When Paul urges people to put off the old self, he means the old Adam. Conversely, to put on the new self means that believers are to individually appropriate who they are in Christ. The new man represents the new people of God, composed of both Jews and Gentiles who are one in Christ. As Lincoln says, Christ has created This corporate new person in himself, the new humanity, is embraced in his own person. This stands in contrast to the old self, the old Adam, through whom people enter the world, has been crucified. Now what's most important for our purposes this evening in this sermon is that the term new man refers to the new humanity in Christ. We're going to look at another verse that speaks of this just to confirm and to elaborate on what I have been saying. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is a very important passage for this idea. 
that one of the ways of, of thinking about what God is creating in Christ is a new humanity, a new humanity for a new creation. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, is all about how God in the gospel united the Jews and the Gentiles in a new humanity, and that's clearly a major concern of our text passage. The uniting of Jews and Gentiles in the church through the gospel is a major topic in the New Testament and also in the prophecies of salvation of the Old Testament. It's a major theme and concern in the Bible. The uniting of Jews and Gentiles is a major part of what salvation is all about in the biblical account of salvation. And Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is a key passage for that. Obviously, there was great division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the Old Testament. God chose the offspring of Abraham to be his people. He did not choose any of the other nations to be his people. And so you end up with this great division. Ephesians 2.12, said, Paul says there to the Ephesians who were Gentiles, remember that you were at the time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So there's this huge separation, this huge barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's separation, there's alienation. But Paul goes on to say that Jesus' death on the cross was about removing that barrier. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice the language of removing separation and bringing unity. You Gentiles, you were once far off. You've been brought near, and what has brought you near is the blood of Christ. Continues in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You see, many of the ordinances and laws of the Old Testament, they were all about maintaining the separation between Jews and Gentiles. That separation was a necessary part of God's plan of salvation. But with the coming of Christ, the time for that separation had come, for that separation to be removed. And part of that was these Old Testament laws that enforce the separation between Jew and Gentile, they were abolished. And then Paul goes on to describe what, what God was working toward by removing the separation between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 15b and 16, that he might create, there you have the language of new creation, that he may create in himself one new man, one new humanity, in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what we have here is a language of new humanity, removing separation and division between people. The reason the Bible is so interested in uniting Jews and Gentiles in Christ is that a huge part of what salvation is all about is that God is creating one new humanity in Jesus Christ. God removed the separation between Jew and Gentile that he might create in him one new man in the place of two. That's the meaning of the term new man in Colossians 3, verse 10. The new man is the one new man in the place of two that God is creating on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. This one new man is Christ and the the new humanity that is in him. God was reconciling both Jew and Gentile to himself in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the new man is the new humanity that God is creating, which belongs to the new creation language of Scripture. So back to Colossians 3. We're laying out the groundwork for understanding and appreciating the significance of our text here there is not Jew, Greek or, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Where is here, where the old man has been put off, where the new man has been put on, where the new humanity in Christ has been put on, and where the new humanity in Christ is being renewed after the image of its creator, here, there's more creation, new creation language, with the, the man being recreated in the image of God. One of the great results of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin is that the image of God was damaged and, and distorted in the whole human race. One of the results of that broken image of God is separation. Separation between God and man, separation between people. So we have Adam and Eve being uh, driven out of the garden. We have Cain killing Abel. We have the Tower of Babel and the separation there. We have a world full of conflict and hatred and uh, animosity. But in the new creation... God is renewing in his image in the new humanity. And one of the great results of that is that divisions are removed and unity is established. <clears throat> the renewing of the image of God in the new humanity is new creation language. And one of the great themes associated with that is the removal of barriers, the overcoming of separation in the new humanity The new humanity, rather, is one in Christ. And that's how our text fits with the context. That's why I've sought to relay in a deeper way the meaning of the terms old man, new man, image of God, in terms of new humanity and new creation. What's so significant about the new humanity in Christ is unity, reconciliation, first between God and man and then between 
people. The new man is one in Christ. And where the old man has been put off and the new man has been put off there, put on rather, there there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what this means is that these categories are no longer cause for division. They're still Jews and Gentiles or Greeks in the new humanity. But that, no, that distinction no longer had a divisive significance. The most significant category was no longer Jewishness or Greekness, but Christness, being in Christ. Same as the case of the other categories mentioned in the text, circumcised, uncircumcised, just another way of referring to Jews and Greeks. That was the major decision to be over a division to be overcome in the early church and so it is prominent in these passages but Paul also mentions barbarians and Scythians these are both terms of dishonor barbarians were considered uncultured uncivilized and ignorant Scythians were an extreme form of barbarian in the words of one scholar the Scythian was generally thought to be the epitome of unrefinement and savagery Slave and free, other pair of contrasting categories. That distinction was certainly an important one in general society. But in the new humanity, whether you are a slave or a free person made no difference in terms of acceptance or status. A slave and a free person are equal in Christ. And a good example of this in the New Testament is the way in which Paul speaks of Onesimus in the letter to uh, Philemon. Onesimus was a slave. Philemon was the master. And Paul writes to Philemon concerning Onesimus, you must consider, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul is asking the master to consider the slave in the same way that he thought of Paul. Now, the issue of slavery in the Bible is complicated. I'll deal with it when we get to chapter 4, which deals with the relationship between masters and slaves. In order to understand and apply this text, all we need to know that in the early church, where slavery was a reality, when it came to the relationship between Christians, free people and slaves were equal, and the distinction between them in society was not to be carried into the church. Now let's think about this in our own time and experience. The categories of our text are not part of our experience, but they're not hard to translate to the categories of our time. There is not to be division on the basis of otherness. On the basis of any of the kinds of distinctions that cause separation and division in the world. But we're not talking about the world here. We're talking about the new humanity, the church, the kinds of differences and distinctions which cause separation and division and hatred in the world are not to cause separation and division and hatred in the church because the church of God is a new, is God's new humanity which belongs to the new creation. 
So what are the kinds of differences that cause people in the world to hate one another, to look down on others or maintain separation from others? A big one, of course, is race or nationality or ethnicity. A lot of talk about racism right now, and it's obviously a problem in our world, regardless of what we think about how that problem should be addressed. From the biblical perspective, we're talking about how God addresses the problem of hatred and division between races, and clearly from our text, that is through salvation in Jesus Christ, through God creating one new humanity in Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's answer to racism. It's not to say that Christians have nothing to contribute to dealing with racism in the world, but that's not what this text is about. At least it's not about that in the first place. In the one new humanity in Christ, there are no races in the sense that race is not a category of division. There are races in the sense that we can appreciate each other in ways that we are different, but races are not to be a factor when it comes to things like belonging, respect, honor, or status. Our status of belonging to the new humanity in Christ is what is to determine how we relate to one another. And as far as the world is concerned, the greatest contribution that we can make to the problem of racism is to demonstrate to the world the reality of the new humanity that God is creating in Christ. Here's one way of expressing this thought, written by uh, Everett Ferguson in his book called The Church of Christ. He says, The church represents an alternate society. Within the disciplined community of believers, the new humanity begins to be realized. The church offers an example to society, a vision of a better way. The church is not called to enter the secular arena in order to make a sick world well. She is called to act well and so serve as a reconciling witness to society. The church does not have a social strategy. The church is a social strategy. Within the church, there is created a fellowship that shatters society's categories. The Christian gospel and manner of life change persons and thus society indirectly. But this is not simply the individualism of evangelical Protestantism. The the individuals are incorporated into a new social organism, the church, and this offers to the larger society an alternative to its social evils. So the shattering of society's categories is what our text is about, and it includes more than divisions caused by race. Here's another quote from the same author. He says, There are false principles of unity around which people organize themselves. People might find their sense of identity from citizenship in a nation, being of the same race, sharing a certain occupation or economic status, adhering to a a particular political doctrine, participating in a certain social class, sharing the same level of educational 
attainment. The church is intended to transcend all these bases of unity. True peoplehood is to be found in God through Jesus Christ. So Ferguson there is expressing the point of our text using contemporary categories. So what Paul is doing in this text is presenting a vision of how the divisions that tend to separate people from each other are no longer negatively relevant in the new humanity in Christ. What what the most important thing about us is who we are in Christ, and in Christ we are one. The distinctions that cause so much division in the world belong to the old man, which has been put off. There's a positive role for many of them, but there's no place for them to cause division. Instead, the new humanity has been put on. The new humanity is being renewed. And there, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So in the new humanity, Christ is all. Refers to the centrality of Christ to the new humanity. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our Lord. Our life comes from Christ. Our life is for Christ. We are saved by him. We are saved to live for him. And where that is the case, there is the desire to be like him in counting others more significant than ourselves, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2. And Christ is in all. Christ, through his Spirit, dwells in the new humanity. And he is at work in the new humanity that he is creating. That is the vision. And it comes right in the middle of all these exhortations about putting sin to death and putting away anger and lying and, and, and slander. It comes right before another whole group of exhortations about compassion and kindness and humility. We put away sin and when we put on loving and caring, we're seeking to be the new humanity that God has begun and which he is perfecting. So let's see the beauty of what God is doing in Christ to renew the human race as part of the renewal of the whole creation. Think of the beauty of a community where every member is respected and loved. Think of the contrast between that picture and the hatred and the division that is such a prominent feature of the human race outside of Christ. We're not there yet. God is not done with us yet. But we can be thankful for the love and the unity that we do experience. And we can be inspired by the vision of what God is working towards. And may that vision draw us to consider our own attitudes towards those who are different and seek to grow towards what God is working towards as he renews us in Christ. Let's pray.
Our great and glorious God, we stand amazed before this vision of what you are working towards in the salvation that Jesus has accomplished the cross and by his resurrection and as he continues to implement from his place at your right hand. Lord, we know the reality of separation and hatred. We see it in the world. We experience it to some degree in our own lives because of remaining sin. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to to capture this vision that the Apostle Paul is, is putting before us in your word. And that we may see the whole battle against sin, the putting to death and the putting away and the putting on of, of virtues in the light of this glorious picture, this vision of what you are working toward. And Lord, we pray that that would inspire us, that your word might inspire us and capture our imagination and give us a longing to see that reality implemented more and more in our lives and in our congregation. We pray that you would enable us to be a witness to the world in that way, that the world may see the way in which we accept one another and embrace one another and that they may be drawn to the, the wonderful reality that you are working towards, that we are to reflect in our lives together. Lord, we pray that you would use our celebration of the Lord's Supper to strengthen us in that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. connection with what we've been dwelling on, between what we've been dwelling on and the Lord's Supper, I think is quite obvious. The Lord's Supper is, among other things, a reminder of and a celebration of our unity in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 and, uh, 16 and 17 is a key text. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The so Lord's Supper is a celebration and a confirmation of the fact that by us all eating the same bread and together drinking wine or juice that represents the blood of Christ, we participate in Christ as one. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same bread. And it's interesting, too, that in Ephesians 2, when Paul speaks of the uniting of the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ to form that one humanity, the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ is the means for that union. Uh, Ephesians 2, 15b and 16, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace <clears throat> that he might reconcile us both to, to God in one body through the cross. 
reconciliation to God and reconciliation to one another, they happen together. God reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross. The cross is the foundation of both. The cross reconciles us both to God and to one another. The two are inseparable. They are both part of one salvation, and the cross is the foundation. And that, re- that reality is a feature of the Lord's Supper as well. We remember that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, but we remember also that he died to make us one new man, <clears throat> to make us one new humanity, to make us one body in Christ. And so also here, the vision is to encourage us to make it more and more a reality in our corporate existence as the people of God. One of the points of the Lord's Supper that it is, is that it is a reality, an objective reality, our unity in Christ. It's an objective reality. And that reality calls us to make what is objectively true of us as believers who are one in Christ, to make that more and more a reality in our experience as believers dwelling together in unity and love. 